It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm David Knowles. And this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we bring you the latest news from Ukraine, discuss the coup in Niger, and we have the first part of a special two-part interview with the FT's Ukraine correspondent, Christopher Miller. Bravery takes you through the most unimaginable hardships to finally reward you with victory. We need a military strategy for Ukraine to gain a decisive advantage on the battlefield, to win the war. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from The Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting from the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Monday, the 31st of July. 157 days since the full-scale invasion began. And today I'm joined by our associate editor Dominic Nichols, economics reporter Melissa Lawford, and Ukraine correspondent for the FT, and author of a new book, The War Came to Us, Life and Death in Ukraine, Christopher Miller. I started by asking Dom for the latest news from Ukraine. Sure. Well, hi, David. Hi, everybody. It's, uh, it's good to be back. So a number of strikes across um, across Moscow. But first of all, let's talk about uh, Ukraine. There's been uh, multiple strikes across the country uh, last night and across uh, over the weekend. So firstly, a missile attack on uh, actually President Zelensky's hometown of Krivyri has left five dead. So this is down in, we're just on the sort of Zaporizhia, Hezon Oblast uh, region, just on the right bank of the Dnipro. So a nine-storey block of flats was hit there. Uh, it completely wiped out five floors. A local university building was almost levelled. Uh, it's killed five, 43 wounded. You'll see footage of that on our on our sites and other social media. Uh, President Zelensky said in recent days, the enemy has been stubbornly attacking cities, city centres, shelling civilian objects and housing. But this terror will not frighten us or break us. We're working and saving our people. Andrei Yermak, Zelensky's chief of staff, he wrote on Telegram, he said, we need to economically suffocate Russia to deprive the military industrial complex of the ability to produce the types of missiles with which they kill our people. Destroying Russian capabilities to strike our cities is a priority, he said. Now, this was, as I said, part of a wider series of attacks that hit over um, 100 towns and cities just in the last 24 hours. This is according to Ukraine's Ministry of Defence. There were uh, other deaths that we know of in, in Hezon. There will be others, too. And the MOD there, so, so Ukraine's MOD said 130 settlements and 91 infrastructure objects were attacked um, using a variety of weapons. So they're talking tanks. Uh, mortars, normal tubed artillery, rocket artillery, air defence systems, aircraft, the whole the whole panoply. Uh, the MOD said there are dead and wounded among civilians. The number of victims is being specified. Now, separately, Hanna Malia, Ukraine's deputy defence minister, said Russian forces have continued to try to advance in the northeast of the country. Um, now, I think, my view, this is the only area Russia really has the capability and the will to try to advance everywhere else i think they've they properly transitioned onto the defensive for now um and and this is partly an effort to help that defense i think uh, moscow troops pushing hard in the in the northeast as a way of trying to force ukraine to divert resources to deal with that threat although there's no clear reporting how much if anything ukraine has had to move from the counteroffensive effort down south to deal with this thing in the northeast 
But in a, a media briefing yesterday, Hannah Malia said on the Liman axis, the Russian Federation was unsuccessful. Nonetheless, during the last week, they have been trying to assault to oust our troops from taken positions. On the northern flank in the vicinity of Bakhmut, hostilities continue. There, the enemy is trying to restore lost positions. And during the last week, there have been combat encounters which have brought about no changes in positions. The enemy has been unsuccessfully trying to restore lost positions in the in the vicinity of Staromyorska. Now, that was the town taken last week in the in the southern front. So still a lot of, uh, well, a very little movement, actually, in, in the line around the east, around Bakhmut. Um, the Ukraine not seemingly able in recent days to make any more advances around the, the north, uh, the northwest and the southwest. But there is still still very, very active there. Now, onto these drone strikes around Russia. This is this is interesting. Two people injured um, in a, when a drone hit a farm in Russia's uh, Rostov region down south. This comes from Baza, a Russian telegram channel, which has close links to uh, Moscow's security services. They said the drone crash landed near uh, Taganrog in, in Rostov region. This is right. We're right up in the northeast corner of the Sea of Azov. We're about 20 k's over the border with Ukraine, about the same distance from uh, Prigozhin on Don. Sorry, Rostov on Don, the uh, the scene of that um, the June the 24th mutiny or whatever that thing was. Now, this follows a report of another drone hitting a police station in western Russia and then in perhaps the biggest strike in recent weeks. Early yesterday morning, three drones are said to have hit the Moscow City area of Moscow itself. So Moscow City is a, a glitzy business district's got got accommodation there as well but it's part of of moscow there's social media footage which you can find again on our website and elsewhere two well we're not sure if they're drones but we think they are two things hit buildings one was allegedly shot down by uh, russian air defense but you see there's shattered glass metal raining down the streets russia says two injuries social media footage shows um, one of the uh, one of the strikes pretty dramatic. I mean, it's dark. It happened at about four in the morning, so it's dark. So you can see this big blast in a in a fairly swanky street. Um, our colleague James Kilner he wrote it up. It's in today's paper. It's online. He said um, uh, mobile phone footage captured the moment at four fifteen a.m. when two drones hit uh, hit one of the the building building blocks, the building towers. He said a whining noise could be heard before a loud explosion, and then uh, you hear people screaming. Later, photos showed a gaping hole on the ninth floor of the 42-storey skyscraper. Glass, twisted metal and documents from Russia's Ministry of Digital Development littered the street below. Now, in response, Sergei Sobyanin, who's the mayor of Moscow, he said he's attributing it to Ukraine and to, and to drones specifically. He said Ukrainian drones attacked tonight. Facades on two city office towers were slightly damaged. Hours later, uh, President Zelensky said gradually the war is returning to the territory of Russia, to its symbolic centres and military bases, and this is an inevitable, natural and absolutely fair process. Now, this was the third drone attack on Moscow in a week, which I think is quite quite stark. Uh, all, all part, I think, of a, uh, a Ukrainian plan, campaign plan to erode the confidence Russian citizens have in the ability of Putin to provide security. This kind of thing just eats away at that idea that he is supremely powerful and that nothing can get through the, the might of Russia's defences. It builds on the back of the Wagner mutiny and it's all all part of that effort, I think, to, to chip away at the confidence and to just show that this, this war is not some distant thing. It's, it's there, it's on the streets of, of Moscow inside russia now james also uh, reported on russia's navy day parade that was held yesterday in st petersburg this is usually a pretty big set piece event but this year as he reports it was a little uh, muted uh, putin used the event to uh, to talk about one of his idols 18th century czar peter the great built the russian navy expanded the empire blah 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 but unlike last year when Putin gave a pretty bombastic speech raging against the, the US and the West and you know all the usual suspects, this was a more restrained performance that focused on patriotism and history. Um, he did say he wanted to expand the Navy, but there was no mention at all of the war in Ukraine. Now, I think this follows a pattern of, of Putin trying to lay claim to the past, placing himself as the um, the spiritual embodiment, if you like, of the Russian soul. 
I think all his, his repeated allusion to to Peter the Great is, uh, is is actually pretty Orwellian and straight out of the pages of 1984. If you've not read it or seen the movie, uh, but in that George Orwell said, "He who controls the past controls the future, and he who controls the present controls the past." And I think that's exactly what Putin's trying to do here. Let me take a little break there. Thank you very much. Tom, you've been looking at uh, some analysis from the Institute for the Study of War about Russia's military bloggers, um, and you've picked up some in- interesting things from it. What have you What have you seen? Yeah, thanks, David. So this is uh, the ISW, as you say, um, a respected US-based think tank. We're hoping to go and visit them when we do our uh, do our roadshow around the US in September. But the last couple of updates, the last two days' updates from ISW, I think have been very interesting. They've been dealing specifically with Russia's use of information and specifically how critical reports from the war um, that have been in evidence from the Russian military blogger community have dried up. Now, there's not a lot of dissent, as we know, in Russia, but military bloggers and commentators have um, seemingly been allowed to voice a a level of criticism. Um, I don't think this is a mark of an open, free, honest and reflective press, but a very controlled way for Putin to be able to claim that such a thing exists in in Russia. So, I mean, you know, they they are critical and they do have... Um, they do have many, many followers on on Telegram. So you know, it, this is it is interesting that they have been so critical in the past. However, now that seems to have uh, halted in the very recent past. We know overt criticism of the, of the war can result in arrests and possible jail terms. And the the message from the Kremlin very obviously is that any deviation from the lineup, Russia's campaign is going brilliantly, and Ukraine's as a failure, won't be tolerated. But the ISW says that these these mill bloggers that they they, they say are pro war ultra nationalists, um, they are coalescing around the Kremlin's narrative effort to portray the current Ukrainian counteroffensive as a failure, and they are increasingly overstating Ukrainian losses and writing less about Russia's losses and challenges than they have done in the past. Now, in particular, um, ISW say that the the lack of of reaction to a recent strike, Ukrainian strike on the Cholna Bridge. This links Crimea to Herzon, um, and Ukraine said on Saturday that it had, it had hit it. Um, the lack of response to that represents a notable. This is ISW's words. Represents a notable inflection in Russian reporting on the war in Ukraine, and may suggest that the Kremlin has directed Russian mill bloggers to refrain from covering certain topics. They say they've not observed any Russian discussion, mill blogger discussion about the strike or any Russians promoting the claim by Vladimir Saldo, who's the head of the occupation administration in Hezon, uh, when he said that Russian forces had intercepted 12 storm shadow cruise missiles targeting the bridge. Now, that claim is probably false. Don't worry about that. But the, the fact that, that his words were not picked up, I think, is is notable. Now, the only other Russian source that comment on the strikes was a local Russian news telegram channel that um, amplified words from tourists in the area about the bridge being closed to traffic. So this bridge, I mean, we talk a lot, a lot about the, the, the Kirsch Bridge, but, but the Chernar Bridge is, is, um, is very significant as well. It is a notable bottleneck along a critical Russian, uh, as the military say, ground line of communica- communication, G-lock, um, basically a you know, a decent favoured route, a good route to resupply forces. Now, that was hit by Storm Shadow on June the 22nd. Um, you may remember pictures. We saw pictures on social media of that strike that punched a large hole through the reinforced concrete um, road. And Moscow actually did comment at the time, said it had caused serious damage. So, you know, we are aware of this of this bridge. It has been targeted before. It is it is a very, um, a very significant route. As an aside, just pause for one moment to give you an idea of what an addition Storm Shadow has been to, to Ukraine and how it has, you know, it's great in itself, but it has freed up other munitions for other tasks. So it's allowed GM, GMLRS, for example, the guided multiple launch rocket systems to concentrate on counter battery fire. So going after the Russian artillery. Um, and it's thought that the Antonovsky Bridge in Herzon needed dozens of GMLRS strikes during the Herzon counteroffensive last summer before it, it also was as damaged as the 
the Chonar Bridge has, has been damaged by one storm shadow. That gives you a bit of a comparison. But anyway, but back to the back to the response to to this attack. Now, that June the twenty second storm shadow attack on the Chonar Bridge, the Russian mill bloggers they they the, you know toys out the cot properly. I mean, absolute outrage, and they reflected concern and they were you know critical of their of Russia's armed forces. Now, ISW say it is highly unlikely that they would voluntarily ignore a successful or even unsuccessful Ukrainian strike on the bridge so soon after that June the 22nd hit. Now, they may be shaping their coverage of the war in Ukraine to be more favourable to the Kremlin out of fear of punishment. We've seen the recent removal of prominent critical voices such as Igor Gherkin uh, and obviously the response to, to Prigozhin and, his, and, his, uh, and the Wagner thing. Um, but the general fear of Kremlin punishment, the ISW suggests, would not likely result in such a near universal lack of coverage of such a dramatic event. It's much more likely that there's been a specific Kremlin directive not to cover disruptions to critical routes, uh, ground routes and logistic routes um, that that would be flagged up by this kind of reporting. So I think it's very inf- interesting that this um, uh, this route that we... I mean, we cite the Russian mill blogger community quite a lot and we look at Telegram and we always sort of caveat it with saying, we, you know, we don't, we don't really know and we wouldn't ordinarily trust these people. But, uh, you know, in the absence of information, this, this seems to be reasonable. So I think it's quite interesting that they're now being... If they are being shut down, it just speaks again that that, that veneer of... Of, of dare I say it, respectability or veneer of having a normal press and media uh, environment is, is just being wiped out. You know, even even that level of of dissent, that such very mild dissent, is now is now being shut down because of the damage it can do, seemingly to to uh, to Putin's war machine. So we will obviously keep an eye out on that. But um, but yeah, sometimes it's what you're not hearing that that's just as significant as as what you are. No, absolutely. Thank you very much. Dom, just to finish today then, I mean, as as mentioned, uh, we have two interviews going into today's podcast, so do listen to them later. That is why today's space is going to be slightly shorter. But Dom, can I just hear your final thoughts for today, please? Yeah, so final thought, I would just uh, like to mark that the 29th of July, um, so where are we? Was that Saturday? That was the, the year um, anniversary, if you like, or marked a year since the Olenivka prison massacre now you may remember there were a number of ukrainian prisoners of war many of whom if not all had come from the azovstal complex in mariupol they were held in a um a prison in molodizhna this is in there so we're in donetsk molodizhna it's near the, the the town of olenivka it was suddenly suddenly destroyed now prisoners of war are under the geneva conventions afforded all the all the um rights of protection they are no longer combatants once they are uh, that once they've been removed from the battlefield and been um, disarmed they are hors de combat in the terminology they should be protected but the building in which they were being held was suddenly destroyed killed 53 prisoners of war injured 75 um always suspected that it was um, a Russian strike or a Russian blast, possibly to, there were suggestions it was to, to cover up um, evidence of, um, of war crimes and torture and, and killings there. On the 3rd of August last year, uh, UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres, he did actually say, uh, he announced a, a fact-finding mission. This was supported initially by Russia and Ukraine, and then when it got going, or as the process got going, Russia refused to cooperate with the UN and the uh, International Red Cross, the ICRC, and the fact-finding mission was disbanded. So nothing's happened since then. Uh, last Tuesday, we should note, the UN officially rejected Russia's claims that the explosion was caused by a Ukrainian high-mass rocket that had been, I don't know, it doesn't, doesn't matter what they think, it's a load of old nonsense. So I, I just, it was, it was su- it's such a significant moment um, that I think it's worth noting that once when you are a prisoner of war, I mean it's just, it's just unconscionable what what happened there, and we should not forget the the individuals that were killed and injured and their families, um, or that I mean make your own mind up of course, but the the very strong suggestion that 
that this was a deliberate act by Russia to silence these people, punish them for their stout defence and as of style, whatever whatever you want to say. But the fact that that yet another um, war crime has been committed on such a scale, I think, is is worth noting. And so I think it happened over the weekend, but uh, one year since the uh, 53 Ukrainian prisoners of war were killed in the Olenivka prison, I think is worth noting. Earlier today, I spoke to economics reporter Melissa Lawford. Melissa has been looking at the coup in the West African country of Niger. Just yesterday, supporters of the coup attempted to storm the French embassy after marching through the capital waving Russian flags and chanting the name of Vladimir Putin. The country might be thousands of miles from the war in Ukraine, but the fight over influence across the world for political capital and resources continues. Here's our conversation. Melissa Lawford, you've been following this story. Can you sum up what's happening in Niger? Last week, the president, Mohamed Bazoum, uh, and he, he was one of the West's last allies in the Sahel region in northern Africa. He was detained by his own presidential guard last week. Um, he's still detained. Uh, the coup was came from... The presidential guard and the leader of that guard has declared himself in charge of the country. Now, in name, this coup, they're saying, is because the president wasn't able to uh, protect Niger against growing Islamist violence in the region. But there's also been quite an element of surprise here, quite a lot of analysts didn't see that coming, weren't expecting that as, as a reason. And we are seeing quite a lot of evidence of some Russian involvement. We've seen people protesting or sort of marching in, in the capital and they are chanting in favour of Putin and in favour of Wagner. And, and these words are, are being said there is this acknowledgement that uh, this is a Russian presence and it is an anti-France movement uh, because Niger was this former French colony. France has troops stationed there uh, and there is this sense that this is Russia expanding its sphere of influence. As you mentioned, this, this all comes in the context of sort of wider instability in the Sahel. Could you just briefly talk about what's happening in the region? In the last few years, there's been a lot of instability across the region. There's been these jihadist insurgencies. And what we've seen recently is Mali and Burkina Faso have both kicked out the French troops that were stationed there. And we've seen Russia expand its influence in in those two countries. And now Niger, which was the kind of last last western post america also has a, a very large drone base there now that now that kind of sphere of of well that 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 instability and and russian influence is is spreading west so there are fears that you know niger won't be the last and we could see this move to chad uh, we've also you know, russia's also got a kind of presence in in sudan it's also got a presence in libya and geographically, that, that becomes pretty significant. You've mentioned a few times Russia's involvement in this coup. Could you talk a bit more about that? How are they involved exactly? It seems to be a fairly indirect thing. This is Niger's coup. It's not, it's not official, but... When you, when you have large numbers of the population uh, chanting things like long live Putin, down with France, it, it's, very, it's very evident that there is this connection and there is this sense that, that Wagner is, is supporting things. That, that it's just very, very clear that there is a kind of connection. There's been sort of claims that, that Russia's been spreading disinformation and it, it's... it's my view on it is it's quite subtle, but it but it is there, and and it's also definitely anti-France and anti-West. Let's move then to the impacts on the West. What does this mean potentially for Europe's energy supply? This is kind of the force of well, one of the forces of your article. 
So there are a few elements here. Um, the first is on nuclear power. Niger produces about 5% of the world's uranium, but it exports 100% of that to France. And obviously we know France is a major nuclear, relies quite heavily on, on nuclear power. It makes up about nearly 70% of, it's how it produces nearly 70% of its electricity. And it, France also exports to to Germany. And, and so we, we have this wider picture of, of nuclear energy in the European Union, which in total gets about a quarter of its electricity from nuclear power. So that, so that is a fairly small chunk. I think overall Niger makes up about 11 or 12% of, of France's uranium imports. But, but what this highlights is there is a wider issue with uranium here, which, by the way, is not under sanctions. So nearly two-thirds of France's uranium imports last year came from countries that are now either in, well, either Russia or, or they're in Russia's sphere of influence. I mean, 30% of France's uranium imports came from Russia directly. Um, we saw 12% come from Kazakhstan, 9.6% come from Uzbekistan. So, you know, there, there is this situation where that that is you know, I don't know there's a, there's a question mark over that Niger is is analysts saying Niger is more dependent on France for for its exports than France is on Niger uh, for those imports but but looking at that wider picture suddenly the the supply chain of France's uranium is it's looking more vulnerable and and we can put that in when we look at that in the context of the climate following the energy crisis demand for uranium has been rising globally we've seen prices go up pretty significantly between in the t- in the 2 years to January 2023 the price of uranium globally rose by 74% and and then in the first 6 months of this year we've seen it climb by a further 11% and we've got a lot of countries ramping up uh, nuclear power as a way to make their energy supply more secure, and and so I, I think there is this risk attached to Russia, you know, not not quite having a monopoly over that supply, but having influence in it. And then the second point, which I do think is worth mentioning, is one of the things that Europe has done in the wake of the war to shore up its gas supplies or diversify where it's getting its gas from. Uh, there is a pipeline being built from Nigeria through Niger to Europe. It's called the Trans-Saharan Gas Pipeline. When it's complete, that, that's going to send about 30 billion cubic metres of natural gas to Europe every year, which is about enough to, to satisfy 30 million European homes. And, and that is one of the things that Europe has been doing to fill this gap of all the gas that it used to get from Russia, which was about 155 billion cubic metres per year. And again, you know, that, that if, if Russia has more influence in a country where this pipeline is is being built, there's a risk attached to that. It's, an, it's not a direct risk. These things aren't... It's, it's not suddenly taking control of that. But I, I think, you know, we have a responsibility to to be aware of these risks. A lot of these impacts are on France. Can we talk about France's strategy here? I mean, is there one? How difficult is this for, for Emmanuel Macron? This is a difficult zone. France is in a difficult position here. It's got about 1,500 troops stationed there. Macron has come out and said he, he's been talking with the ousted president. He's saying he will not attack. Uh, he will not tolerate any attack against France and its interests. The EU has come out and said it's it's not recognizing uh, the military leaders who who say that they've taken control. The EU is suspending security cooperation. France is cutting development aid. So you know there there is. There is movement here, but some people feel frustrated by France's response and want to see something more aggressive in in response here. I, you know, I, I think 
I think Macron is going to be very wary of of inflaming anything further than he needs to. But some people certainly are, are feeling frustrated by the the lack of definitive response. And how does just to finish? How how does Russia benefit from this? There are a few there are a few ways. You know, I mean, obviously there there's the the energy dynamics that we've mentioned. There's also a question of general resources in Niger. Some analysts have been telling me about you know Wagner's modus operandi is gold, and there is gold in Niger, and maybe Russia will move on that and and start start taking some as a way to bolster their own reserves or pay their troops. It's evidence they've been doing that elsewhere in in North Africa, but I think the the biggest thing here is it's a question of influence and Russia's presence in this region and a kind of idea of control and, and expanding that presence. What one analyst is saying, you know, it's sort of part of this move to cut off Europe from the global south. We've already seen Mali and Burkina Faso push out Western troops and tell UN security mission to leave. And Niger was one of the last countries that was still firmly Western aligned. So, you know, we're kind of losing this linchpin in the fight against the terrorist groups that are linked to Al-Qaeda and ISIS, which which have been moving across the region. And if these regions become more unstable, that, that plays into Russia's hands. So that, that gives them resource, it gives them political capital, uh, it gives them more more bargaining power and influence and, and it isolates us, I think. Melissa, is there anything else uh, to say on this that we, we haven't talked about? I'm just very conscious that when, when Russia was building up troops on, on the border of Ukraine last year, it felt like something that could never happen. And... You know, we can be very, very measured in the way that we talk about Russia's presence in Africa uh, and we can talk about how much Niger needs France as as an export ally. And all of those things are very true. But I think the biggest lesson here is that we need to be prepared for everything because actually... There is so much that we don't know and and so much is unpredictable uh, and we need to be more wary. Earlier today, I spoke to Christopher Miller, Ukraine correspondent at the Financial Times and author of a new book, The War Came to Us, Life and Death in Ukraine. In the first of this two-part interview, we speak about his time living and working in the country, his years reporting from the front lines and the development of the Ukrainian military since 2014. Here's Christopher Miller. Chris, thanks so much for your time. You first arrived in Ukraine when you were 25 years old. What were your first experiences of the country and how do you think it's changed since then? The short answer is it's changed a lot. When I arrived here, I knew very little about the country. I had not visited Ukraine before and I had not actually been further east of London at at that point. So Ukraine was brand new to me. It was very different from anything that I had seen or experienced previously growing up on the West Coast of the U.S. in Portland, Oregon. Obviously, the size of Kiev was much bigger than uh, Portland was. And there was a a language barrier, of course. Um, In school, I had studied Japanese, which certainly did not help much uh, in Eastern Europe. And I had no plans in in, in arriving uh, in Ukraine. It was actually a uh, now I could say a fortunate accident, uh, me me arriving there, because I had actually asked the United States Peace Corps program to send me to Africa. And I was really interested in going somewhere in sub-Saharan Africa um, with this program that sends volunteers abroad for 27 months at a time. And they came back and said, you know, we, we would love to accept you and send you abroad, but we're going to send you to Ukraine instead. Is that fine? And I said, yeah, sure. So I I ended up in Kiev with hopes of actually making my way to Western Ukraine or Crimea, both places where there is beautiful forests and mountains and being in Crimea, being close to the sea, sort of like where I grew up in Portland, 
you know, I thought would be interesting. And what happened was they sent me to far eastern Ukraine, just a couple of uh, uh, hours from the Russian border in the city of Bakhmut, which at the time was called Artyomovsk still. It had been named by the Soviets after an ally of Stalin. So his name was Artyom. It had been called Artyomovsk. Now a lot of people and, and many of your listeners will recognize it as Bakhmut, this place where there was this long 10-month grinding attritional battle before the Russians destroyed the city and um, uh, occupied it. But long before that, when I arrived, it was this beautiful little town with rose-lined streets, people who cared very much about their family, their friends. They kept to themselves. They were not very involved in politics. I think they were skeptical of the central government in Kiev, who they believed cared more about business in Kiev and holding on to power than many of the regional cities far, far, far outside of Kiev. But they were certainly skeptical as well of Moscow. There's this, there's this idea that had certainly made it its way into the media and uh, into public discourse about Ukraine being divided between East and West and the East having this great affinity for Moscow and being anti-Kiev. And, and you know, I've, I've found that not to be true, even as far back as 2010, when I arrived just a couple of months after President Yanukovych, Viktor Yanukovych, who was a very Moscow-friendly president, had come to power. And people had a really strong regional identity. They would tell me we are from the Donbass, meaning eastern Ukraine, this region that was rich in minerals and coal in particular. Around Bakhmut, there were these salt mines in Solidar, just a little bit north of Bakhmut. And People were really proud of their local culture and heritage and their region. And, you know, it was equidistant to Moscow and Kiev from, from this place. So I spent two years living there. It was quaint. The people were at first skeptical of the only American living in this city of a little bit more than 70,000 people. Eventually, they warmed up and, and neighbors became close friends I was working at two of the uh, city's schools, as well as the library, and got to know the mayor, who actually is still mayor of Bakhmut even today. And, you know, I made a lot of really close friends who remain close friends even today. And unfortunately, I, I can't say that they remain in Bakhmut because, as I mentioned, the city's been destroyed now. And, and that was something that was particularly difficult to see over the course of the last year and a half, because... Like I said before, it was this you know beautiful little town with roses and and parks and in a region where you know it was grimy and 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 and, and rough because of the coal mining and the heavy industry there. Bakhmut was sort of this diamond in the rough kind of a place that everybody knew was a little bit cleaner and just kind of a, a step up from some of the other places at the time. Um, and, the, and the shape in which the cities were in, Gorlovka, for example, or Slavyansk or Krematorsk, some of these places are still under Ukrainian control, some under Russian control. And so over the course of the last year and a half, I watched that city be turned into essentially a pile of, of rubble with huge high-rise apartment be buildings being completely destroyed by heavy artillery, Russian airstrikes. And, and it was a surreal experience to see that happen essentially in, in, in real time and sometimes in front of my eyes during a string of several days of reporting inside the city. The people that you knew in Bakhmut, where have they gone? They have spread across the country. Many of them ended up not going very far. They, they moved to the city of Dnipro, uh, which is just a few hours drive to the west and is a little bit safer, relatively so, even though it's still hit with Russian airstrikes, maybe on a weekly basis. There was just a strike there. Uh, within the last few days. Many of them have come to Kiev. Several went to Lviv. And then a few very close friends of mine, including some teachers, some older older teachers who had retired, who I had worked with when I was living in the city, they actually made it to Germany. And two of my, two of my friends and their children also made it to Germany and have spent the last year and a half over there. Luckily, none of them had been stuck in the city while the Russians were pummeling it with these really devastating airstrikes. And they all managed to leave within the first days or a couple of months of the full-scale invasion last year. 
So they're they're safe. They are uh, spread in different places, and and that's made it difficult for them to stay in contact. And obviously, many of them are having to start over. Just actually yesterday, I had lunch with my friend Igor Moroz, who's written about in the book, and he was the first person who I became close friends with. And he's working now for an international humanitarian organization. He connected with them after he arrived with his family in Lviv. They've since relocated just recently to Kiev. And so now we're a lot closer and, and we're seeing more of each other, sort of in the way that we were able to when we lived in Bakhmut. So that's another fortunate happenstance. But most of them have lost just about everything. And he was telling me yesterday that about 90% or, or more of their possessions were left behind in their apartment that has sen- since been destroyed. Do you know what happened to the library and the schools where you were working? Yeah, I do. Because when I was there, I, I had seen the school be hit by a Russian shell. And then a couple of weeks after that, I think this was during one of my trips in autumn or late December, it had been struck again. I look at these drone videos that are posted both by the Ukrainian military and the Russian military of Bakhmut. And I can point out what every single building is or, or, or used to be. And when I was there over the course of 2022 and early 2023, I would go to these places that I knew, my, my first apartment, my second apartment, the schools where I taught, the library, city hall, the central market, you know, areas where I, I spent most of my time and would sort of gauge how bad things have gotten by how much of those buildings uh, were left. And by December of last year, all of them had been at least partially destroyed. And within the last few months, and certainly toward the end of the, the, the battle and before uh, the Russians occupied the city in, in May, all of them had been mostly destroyed, if not completely turned to dust. The city hall building in particular was, was blown up and the central library was hit, which sat right beside one of the schools that I worked at that was hit several times. So unfortunately, they're, they're really there just in, um, in name only now. Can we talk a little bit more about your reporting over the past year and a half? You've been everywhere, crisscrossing Ukraine, reporting from the front lines, from, well, anywhere you name it, you've probably been there. What out of all of that, what really stands out when you look back? Who are the sort of the characters and the, the scenes that you, you that you sort of come, you come back to personally? I think for me, what really stands out are those first hours and first days, and and maybe maybe the first two to three weeks of the full scale invasion. Just because it was unlike anything that we had seen, maybe any of us ever at that point, and certainly not over the course of the nine years or eight years at that point, previously when Russia and after Russia first invaded in 2014. And, uh, you know, I spent a lot of time in, in 2014 um, reporting on the ground, including with Euro uh, uh, Roland Oliphant. You know, we did quite a lot of reporting together back uh, in, in those days. And I think he would agree that, you know, the scale of this was just so terrifying and much, much bigger than anything we had seen. And there was this real feeling of uncertainty and in those first hours, and I write about this in the, in the prologue, I was getting text message after text message, phone call after phone call from friends in Bakhmut or in Kiev or other places that I had uh, lived, worked, who were really worried about um, whether or not Russians were going to um, stream into town and take over buildings and their homes and what they should do, asking, you know, asking me, where should we go? Chris, what do you know? And honestly, for the first time in covering events here, I really didn't have an answer or certainly not an answer that I was comfortable with. I mean, what do you do? I don't know. I, I, I said to most of them, and, and in some cases I said, if you have a car and you're able to get to the West, I would recommend doing that if you can do it safely. But I knew that they would also find roads backed up miles and miles with vehicles and people also doing the same thing. A lot about the, you know, my, my close friends and acquaintances, but also the people who I met in my reporting who were among those who jumped into action, ran down to the police stations to take up arms or ran to uh, one of the many arsenals that swung open their doors and just started handing out Kalashnikov rifles to men and women. You know, you really just had to show your passport and they just made sure you were a Ukrainian citizen and they'd hand you a rifle and you would find a place to go. 
which I just thought was remarkable, but also these people with no military training leaping into the fray in this moment of such great uncertainty when at that point, the Russian military, which is supposed to be the second most powerful military in the world, is heading toward your home. So I think a lot about those people who I saw taking up arms or the families scrambling to get one of the last seats on the trains leaving Kiev or the musicians who I met uh, at a pizzeria leaving behind their instruments and, and also taking up arms to go and fight and joining a, a police unit. Uh, you know, and there was just so much happening, so much happening in those few weeks. You mentioned there the, that, of course, this war, the full-scale invasion, comes after the 2014 invasion. We all make those mistakes and say things when we're interviewing people and say things like, so when, when the war started, and we often, people will say, well, no, 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 it's being, it didn't start in February 2022, it started in 2014. What's your impression of how the Ukrainian military has changed since then? It's been completely overhauled. I mean, the military that we see today is one of the largest in Europe. And in 2014, when Russia first invaded, I remember at the time and in interviews that I've had since and sort of looking back that the military had just five to 6,000 experienced troops who they would have been able to use, assuming that all of them accepted their orders to respond to Russia's invasion. And so what we saw actually in 2014 was Russia covertly invading with these quote unquote little green men, if you remember the popular buzzword from back then because Russian soldiers had taken off their insignia and enrolled in train under the guise of this um, separatist uprising. And so, you know, that that's a whole other thing. And, and, and there was a lot of confusion around that. But the Ukrainians who responded were not largely the regular military. Many of them actually on armored vehicles, and including wanting to open fire on who they saw in some cases were their own people uh, or fearful of igniting a more more serious large-scale war if believing these were Russian soldiers and knowing that they were outnumbered and, and outgunned. The people who leapt into the fray back in 2014 were actually, you know, many of these revolutionaries who had helped to overthrow Viktor Yanukovych in the 2013-2014 Euromaidan revolution, now called the revolution evolution of dignity. And so in, in a very similar way, in, as, as February of 2022, when many of these people I just mentioned grabbed arms from the police stations or from their home or took whatever they had and you know, went to go fight against the Russian invaders, that happened also in 2014 on a slightly smaller scale and in the wake of Crimea's annexation and the revolution. And so these were football, Ukrainian football fanatics. They were sort of the toughs who were on the Maidan, but they were also ordinary citizens, historians, teachers, police officers. There was a lot of chaos and disarray, and these volunteer battalions popped up and with no official connection to the military, began organizing themselves and responding and actually doing a fairly decent job of not letting Russian forces get further than they did in Donetsk and Lugansk regions of eastern Ukraine, and then even pushing them back further before about eight or nine months into that first invasion, they, they, were, they, they were able to stop Russia at this line of contact for this period of eight years prior to the full-scale invasion. But in that time, Russia, of course, was preparing for its full-scale invasion, but Ukraine was also building up its military. And many of these volunteer battalions that originally fought in 2014 were you know, brought into the official military fold. They received Western training, Western weaponry more recently. The, the command structure within the Ukrainian military was also uh, overhauled to an extent and, and, and moved further away from its sort of you know, Soviet-era policies to form more of a NATO style or Western style of, of military doctrine and policy. And so when Russia did invade this time, I think, you know, Moscow was expecting this ragtag group of fighters that it saw in 2014 and had great success against with very having to use very little of its military might. And what happened instead was there were these, obviously these, these volunteers 
who you know leapt into this and helped stop uh, the Russians around Kiev. But ultimately, you know what really has kept Russia from capturing Kiev, from capturing Kharkiv, and certainly from not advancing further over the last many months into Ukraine is this now hundreds of thousands of strong Ukrainian military that has been largely westernized, that has, in, in, in the cases of tens of thousands of soldiers, a lot more experience in the type of warfare that we're seeing now than even many NATO militaries. They know how to operate not only their own weaponry, but American weaponry, British weaponry, German weaponry. They have skills and experience that is extremely valuable. And what I've heard now is, you know, and this this is something that I, that I think shows the difference between the Ukrainian military in 2014 and 2023, as we're speaking now, when they being the soldiers who I speak to who have gone over and received training in Poland from NATO armies, including the, the, the British army, there is an, a, an almost an equal exchange of experiences and, and knowledge and training now. It's not just the British military saying, this is how you do this, this is how you do this, and that's the end of the conversation, and then the Ukrainians practice it. They're actually asking as many questions to the Ukrainians as the Ukrainians are to them. So there's this exchange because the armies are seen more as Ukraine's with the West, uh, Western armies as, as more equal. That's how powerful Ukraine's military has become. Now, I will caveat this only slightly by saying over the last year and a half, obviously Ukraine has taken significant casualties and its own military supplies has, have, have dwindled and it's heavily reliant on the West. So one concern among Kiev's leadership here, and I think uh, Ukraine's Western supporters, is how dependent on the West is Ukraine going to be in the foreseeable future and I think the answer to that is greatly dependent on the West. If Ukraine wants to continue to have the, the, the size and the strength of the military that it does, which is why President Volodymyr Zelensky is going to Vilnius and saying, we want a long-term agreement for weapons deliveries and sustained military support rather than just these sort of piecemeal deliveries of $300 million here or a billion dollars of assistance there. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first three months for just £1 at www.telegraph.co.uk forward slash Ukraine The Latest. We'll sign up to Dispatches, our Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. We also have a Ukraine live blog on our website, where you can follow updates as they come in throughout the day including insights from regular contributors to this podcast. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm London time each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so you don't miss it. To our listeners on YouTube, please note that due to issues beyond our control, there is sometimes a delay between broadcast and upload. So if you want to hear Ukraine the latest as soon as it is released, do refer to the podcast apps. If you appreciated this podcast, please consider following Ukraine the latest on your preferred podcast app. And, if you have a moment, leave a review, as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing ukrainepod at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. And you can contact us directly on Twitter. You can find our Twitter handles in the description for this episode. As ever, we are especially interested to hear where you are listening from around the world. Ukraine The Latest was produced by Charles Gear, and the executive producers are David Knowles and Louisa Wells.